is, is of a stream. Now, the stream itself doesn't look very impressive. Uh, it looks like something that you and I could easily cross uh, pretty much without any trouble. But yet this un, unimpressive stream was the site of an event that literally changed the course of world history. Uh, it's, the name of the stream is the Rubicon River, and it's in the country of Italy. And this is the stream, a river, that Julius Caesar crossed, uh, and by doing so, he plunged Rome into a five-year civil war. At the end of those five years, the Roman Republic's demise was certain. The Roman Republic still existed, but by the time that, that Julius was assassinated and his heir, which was Octavian or Augustus Caesar, uh, he would become the first Roman emperor. And so for all practical purposes, the Roman Empire, I'm sorry, the Roman Republic was, was no longer. And the Roman Empire would soon emerge after, as we said, Julius' assassination. Uh, ancient historians stated that prior to the crossing, Julius is recorded to have said, either let a die be cast or the die has been cast. Now, what he meant was this. He wasn't talking about the kind of die that presses uh, plastic and steel into certain forms. He was talking about dice. And what he meant was that the moment you cast or roll your dice or roll a die, your fate has been decided. If you're saying, you know, if number six comes up, then I'm going to do this. Or if number five comes up, I'm going to do this. Or, you know, if you're rolling two dice and you're, you're up in Oklahoma and you come up snake eyes, that's, that's not very good. Uh, and at least that's what they tell me. Uh, so, so anyhow, you have that when you roll the dice... Uh, your, your fate has been decided. And, and, and in other words, part of, we could put it this way, the minute you let go of the dice, you can't take them back. If I'm rolling the dice and I'm rolling it either playing, whether I'm at a casino or whether it is, uh, I'm playing Yahtzee or some other game, the minute that I roll the dice, the minute it leaves my hand, I cannot take them back. And I have whatever happens is going to happen. And I've reached the point of no return. I've reached the point of no return. Now, when it comes to decisions in our lives, many decisions are reversible. There's all kinds of products that have a return policy. They've, even, they've got mattresses with a return policy. Uh, even a lot of automobiles, you know, you can take one and buy it for 30 days, and if you don't like it, you can bring it back. And do all that. There's all kinds of things, all kinds of, uh, in, in our culture, things that where you made a decision and maybe you get buyer's remorse or buyer's regret and you can take it back with any, without any questions asked. Engagements to be married can even be taken back. I was engaged before I met Lisa. Uh, and, you know, that, and maybe some of you, for the, the current spouse that you have, maybe you were engaged to somebody else prior to marrying them. Even an engagement, you know, in our culture, an engagement even can be taken back. I'm not going to say that there's no problems if that happens, but, but you know, that, that can even occur. But other decisions in our life are irreversible. Uh, probably the highest point closest to us at this moment would be if you're going on I-20 and you're going west and you take the I-35 south exit and you take the overpass and go down as you're heading towards Burleson. 
If you, if you get at the very apex of that, of that overpass and you get on the edge of that overpass and you step off of that overpass, there's no reversing that, that decision. You're going down. You're going down. You can't take that first step off and then say, you know what, I think I'll change my mind. It's too late then. That decision is an irreversible decision. And decisions regarding our relationship with God can also be irreversible. Not all of them, but some of them can be irreversible. In fact, it occurs in our text. It occurs in our text. Now again, uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll delve and we'll unpack this a little bit more, but it, we find where the Pharisees make a decision and the decision that they've made to reject Christ is irreversible. And we find, look, if you would look, look at verse 14. Verse 14 is a narrative comment. And verse 14 says this. It says, but the fair conspired there. It's, it's, come from, it's translated and it comes from two, two words. Symbalion and elabon. Symbalion and elabon. And when this phrase is put together, these words are put together, it indicates that they have come to a conclusion. They're not debating this. They're not getting counsel about this. Uh, they're, they're not getting a group together and say, let's take a straw poll and see what everybody thinks. They have made a decision and there's no turning back. They've crossed the Rubicon. They've thrown the die. Uh, they've stepped off the bridge. They've made a decision, and there is no turning back. The leader's rejection and repudiation of Jesus has now become irreversible. It's done. Jesus, in fact, if you look at the text again, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus must be destroyed. Jesus must be ruined. In fact, the Net Bible translates how they might assassinate him. Uh, his life must come to an end. There's no longer any debate about this. They've made the decision. The die is cast. The Rubicon's been crossed. They've stepped off the bridge. It's done. It's done. Now, their reason for wanting him dead was simple. It was pretty cut and dry. Jesus was making messianic claims. And the Pharisees knew that Jesus was making messianic claims. And they chose to reject His claims. They, 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 they heard the claims. They saw the evidence of His claims. But they chose to reject it. Now, if, if you recall, when we looked at... For, for two weeks, we spent time in chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And in this pericope, you also have a Sabbath debate. You also have a Sabbath debate here. And in the, in the previous section, Jesus claimed to have greater authority of presence and greater authority of ministry than the temple. A greater, uh, he, he talks about that uh, there in verse 6. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Remember, Jesus and his, his, his disciples are going through the field. They pluck off heads of grain. The Pharisees say, that's work. Why are your, why are your disciples violating, uh, uh, violating the Sabbath? And, and, and Jesus, Jesus uh, will talk, he shares with them three passages of Scripture. Uh, he takes them that and to show that he is, his ministry is greater than the temple ministry. 
by the fact that the priest worked at the temple uh, on the Sabbath day, and yet they didn't viol- technically violate the Sabbath. Well, technically they were violating the Sabbath, but they were not held accountable to violating the Sabbath because their ministry was of greater value than observing uh, with all the technicalities the Sabbath day. Also, Jesus in that previous section made the fact that He was Lord of the Sabbath and the God of mercy. He closes out verse 8. He says, For the Son of Man uh, is Lord of the Sabbath. We gave you the, the, the whole sentence there in the Greek text where uh, kurios is the first word. And, and Lord, He is. Lord, He is of the Sabbath. And who? The Son of Man. The equative verb there. He, the Son of Man. Jesus is claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And thus, Jesus is claiming Himself to be Messiah. So in the previous Sabbath conflict, Jesus used the power of the written word to state his case. He uses three passages of Scripture to state his case. How that the Pharisees were in error when it came to... uh, they, they, They made the Sabbath day a day of burden. They completely misunderstood what the Sabbath day was all about. The disciples had gone in there and they plucked grain and Jesus confronted them with the fact uh, of what the Word of God had to say and how they had completely misunderstood not only the purpose of the Sabbath, but how they had completely uh, misunderstood mercy and the preeminence of mercy. And so Jesus used the power of the written Word to state His case. In this Sabbath conflict, which involves healing, uh, we find that, that Jesus confronts the Pharisees through the power of His spoken Word. So in the first Sabbath conflict, we have the written word. We have the word of God as found in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. In the second Sabbath conflict, we also have them being confronted with the word. But it's by the spoken word of the one who is the word of God. And so as we look at this this morning, we're going to see, again, these Pharisees. Why these Pharisees get to the place where they make that radical decision where that's it. That's it. And, the, and for them, and as, as we'll see as we get ready into, uh, as we'll see next week, and we'll mention this again, as we see next week beginning in verse 15, what happens when we make a spiritual, when we make a spiritual decision that's irreversible? It's possible. It's possible to make a spiritual decision that is irreversible. But before we get there, let's look at how they set the trap in verses 9 and 10. It says, He, Jesus, went uh, on from there and entered their synagogue, And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So so Matthew is already telling us, before we actually get to sit down, and and, and, and it's kind of like if you're watching a a drama on TV uh, where they might have something posted, some some type ahead that tells you, uh, gives you some background of the story or whatever, so that when you sit down and begin to watch it, you kind of already have an idea of what's going on. Matthew does that for us. We know that, that, that Jesus, uh, he, in the previous section, he's, he's, he's taken the Pharisees to school. He has schooled them. He has schooled the Pharisees regarding their abuse of the Sabbath and their ignorance of mercy. Remember what he said previously, he said in verse 7, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. You would not have charged my disciples with the breaking of the Sabbath, if you really understood Hosea 6.6, if you really understood what it means that I would rather, I, I desire mercy more than, we, we talked about that last time, it's, it's not really a con- contrastive, it's comparative. That I desire mercy more than sacrifice. And so Jesus has schooled them. He schooled them about their abuse of the Sabbath. 
He has schooled them about their ignorance of mercy. And so now, now they're leaving to go into the synagogue. They're walking and making their way into the synagogue, and the Pharisees are still stinging. They are still stinging, stinging from Jesus' public rebuke. But as they look around, their eyes get big. Because as they look around, they see an opportunity to put Jesus in His place. There's an opportunity so that they might accuse Him. And what is that opportunity? Well, lo and behold, there is a man in the synagogue who has an arm that is paralyzed and disformed through atrophy. His arm has been paralyzed so long, his muscles have deteriorated so much that his arm is deformed and he can't move his arm. And in this synagogue now, they have the perfect opportunity of putting that young rabbi in his place. They'll bring this man to Jesus' attention and they do so by saying, by asking the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And lo and behold, here's somebody that needs healing. So they, they, they indirectly point Jesus to this man. They indirectly make sure that Jesus sees this guy. And not only that Jesus sees it, but everybody sees it who just have heard Jesus schooling them about their lack of understanding regarding the Sabbath and their ignorance regarding mercy. But here's what makes it so good in their eyes. You see, they know that if Jesus sees the man, Jesus is probably going to heal him. And if he does heal them, if he does heal this man, they've got him. At least in their thinking, they've got him. Because the teaching of the rabbis for centuries, and you can find this in Mishnah Shabbat, you can find this in Mishnah Yoma, the teaching of the rabbis for centuries has been this, that only if a life is in danger should one attempt to give medical attention on the Sabbath. So if somebody is bleeding, and it's a pretty deep cut, but if it's not a cut, if they're not going to bleed out and die on the Sabbath, you leave them alone. You know, just tell them to squeeze it, or you know, put direct pressure on it, or do something like that, and we'll take care of it tomorrow. We'll stitch you up tomorrow. But if it's something that could cause them to die, if, it's, if, if, if they've hit an artery and, and you know, that, that, that blood's gushing out every time that heart beats, then they could bleed out and so then, then, you, then you're okay to do something. It's okay to do something. I was reading in Mission Yoma and it talks about the fact that one of the examples that they gave is this, is that if you run across somebody who's, who's under a bunch of rubble, Maybe the house has fallen or a building's fallen on them, and you, you can move the rubble. And if you find that there, there, you move the rubble and you find that there's life, then you can continue to move the rubble and get them out. However, if you move the rubble and you find that they're dead, you just leave them and then go get them the next day. You just leave, you know, hey, you're dead, nothing I can do about it. I mean, today's the Sabbath. I'll take care of it tomorrow. I'll take care of it tomorrow. That's, that's part of what this is based on. So they know if Jesus heals them. For centuries, these Jews have been taught 
by, by the Pharisees, by the rabbis of their day, that it is not lawful to heal unless you're healing to make sure that that person stays alive. So if he heals them, they've got him. But if he chooses not to heal him, they've got him too. Because here is this uppity young rabbi talking about, I desire mercy. If you, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. If he decides not to heal this man, here he, here he talks and he talks about mercy, but when given a chance to show it, he refuses. So who is he to teach us we don't understand what the, Sabbath, the full meaning of the Sabbath and we don't understand and we're ignorant of mercy? Who does he think he is? Whatever he does in their thinking, they've got him. They've got him. So with great confidence, they draw attention to the man by asking the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I mean, I can see him in my imagination just kind of And all that steam, all that embarrassment of the rebuke that Jesus had just given to them was in the past because they had him. They had him. What does Jesus do? He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't spin. He doesn't ignore, nor does he act in fear. This account of this healing is also found in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3, when that question is asked, like I said, Jesus doesn't cower in a corner. Jesus doesn't tap his foot and kind of start just speaking to kind of think of a good answer while he's talking. Jesus calls this man to stand up in a prominent place where everyone can see him. He calls him to the center. If, if, if it was in this building, he'd call the man up on the platform to where everybody could see him. If it was a situation where it was like a theater in the round, he'd bring him and put him right in the middle to make sure that everybody could see him. Jesus doesn't back down. Jesus doesn't spin. Jesus doesn't feel like he's caught in a trap. And Jesus, back as we come back to Matthew's gospel, Jesus in our text then addresses the Pharisees and the assembly and powerfully, powerfully displays his divinity. Look at verses 11 through 13. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do, do good on the Sabbath. Then Jesus said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. How is, divi- how is his divinity displayed? Through his word. What he says shows all that he is indeed Israel's Messiah. Now, look, let's look at the text again. Jesus speaks, and the hypocrisy of their heart is revealed. 11 and 12, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep, so it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath? 
He exposes the hypocrisy of their heart. No one argued. No one argued with Jesus that they would not rescue their sheep. No one said, oh, not me. My sheep fell into the pit on the Sabbath. I'm sorry. I wouldn't rescue it. When Jesus makes that statement, it's a matter-of-fact statement. He's making a statement that was accepted by all. He's making a statement that everybody would be in agreement with. That if it's a Sabbath day, and if your sheep has fallen into a pit, you pick it up. You get it out of there. And yet the sheep in the pit and the man with the dysfunctional limb had this in common. Neither, or neither, were in mortal danger. If the sheep fell into a pit, it was not in mortal danger. It, it, it wouldn't be comfortable for the sheep that day. It wouldn't, be a great, it wouldn't be one of the best days of the sheep's life. But the sheep would survive. It would just fall into a pit. It, it, the sheep would survive. The same way with this man with the dysfunctional limb. Uh, having an arm that is paralyzed is not a life-threatening situation. It, 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 his life is difficult, more difficult. His life is uncomfortable. But his life is not threatened to be over. Neither the sheep nor the man were in a life and death situation. But yet, Jesus makes the matter-of-fact statement, if your sheep falls into a pit, there's not a one here that wouldn't pick that sheep up and take it out of that pit. So he makes the comparison here between the man with the withered hand and the sheep. They both are in situations that are not good, but neither of them are in life-threatening situations. But that's where the similarity ends. Because Jesus then says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? Human beings are of more value than animals. Because human beings have been stamped with the image of God. And that is something that animals do not possess. I know a lot of time. I mean, I've had pets that, I mean, you, you think they're human, you know. They act like it. Uh, and they seem to know. They're intuitive. And, and I love animals. Well, maybe not cats. But, I, but I, I love animals, okay? I love animals. And animals can show us great things. They can display uh, characteristics about, about the one who created them. But yet animals do not bear the image of God. Not only do we as human beings bear the image of God, we are image. We are image. If we want to know what, what the, the characteristics of God are like, we look at human beings. Now the bad thing is, as human beings, that image is marred. And it's distorted. It's like going to a carnival and going to the house of mirrors. That image is distorted. But yet, as Christ comes into our life and, and we, we have a, 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 a salvation relationship with Him and God's grace begins to change us in different areas of our lives and our lives become more conformed to the image of Christ, then more of God's character is seen in human beings. But not only do we bear the image of God, we are image. He, animals, regardless of how much we love them, regardless of how much we may, we may care for them, uh, regardless of how, how many times they're better than people, they're still not created in the image of God. And while the Pharisees 
are quibbling about how much help one could give on the Sabbath, Jesus informs them that their own concern for an inferior being demonstrates that it's always good to do good on the Sabbath. They are quibbling about how much you can do on the Sabbath. They are quibbling about whether or not somebody can be healed on the Sabbath. How much can be done towards a human being on the Sabbath? How much effort can be made towards a human being created in the image of God on the Sabbath? Yet, that same Pharisee, as he sees his inferior, an inferior being, that sheep in the pit will have compassion on that inferior being and will pick that sheep out of the pit, yet they have no compassion for those who've been created in the image of God. You see the hypocrisy? You see how Jesus is... These guys are sitting here. I mean, I can. they're sitting here. And all of a sudden... Begin, and, and you can you start seeing some of the, the flumes coming out of their, their ears. Jesus demonstrates that it's always to do good on the Sabbath. And why does a human being act that way? Why will a human being show compassion to a sheep caught in a, uh, uh, that falls into a pit? Why, why do we, as human beings, why, why do we have, when we see, some, you've seen the same commercials that I've had to, from the uh, Society for uh, Prevention for Cruelty Against Animals, what, S-P-C-A-A, I forget what the initials are, that, that our hearts kind of get tugged. Why is it that a lot of times people that end up being serial killers and stuff start off by killing and maiming little animals? Why, why do we have that kind of compassion for an inferior being? It, it's, it's an animal. It's an animal. Why do we have compassion for, for uh, our, 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 our dogs and our cats? And why, why do we have compassion upon other, uh, other animal species? Why? Because the divine creator does good to inferior human beings. Just as human beings show goodness to inferior animals. God, our divine creator, does good to inferior human beings regardless of the day of the week. God doesn't say, well, it's Saturday. I'm sorry, I'm off. <laughs> it's Sunday. I'm sorry, I'm off. I've got to have a day off. Jesus has exposed the hypocrisy of their hearts through His Word. Which one of you? Which one of you? But not only did He speak and the hypocrisy of their heart is revealed, He speaks in divine power and approval uh, uh, approval or on display. Again, look at verse 13. Then He said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Stretch out your hand. How is this man healed? What does Jesus do? What's He do? Is Jesus responding to anything? Does He say anything about this man's faith? Does this man come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that, that you have the power to heal and, and, and if, and if you'll, just, you'll just do it, you can? Is it about this man's faith? 
Does Jesus go through all kinds of parlor tricks to be able to heal this man? What is done and how is it accomplished? Full restoration occurs through the power of His Word. Through the power of His Word. Jesus speaks and it's so. Now these Pharisees know their scriptures. These Pharisees know the Bible. And the minute Jesus speaks and it is so, they know the kind of power that is on display. The power to take something that is broken, the power to take something that is in ruin, and make it whole. Restore. Jesus speaks, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. What would the Pharisees been thinking about? Well, keep your place there in, in Matthew chapter 12, and, and go to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And we're not going to get into whether or not this is... Well, verse 1 is just kind of a, a broad summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Toledoit. Genesis, you can outline Genesis by the Hebrew word toledoit, which is trans, translated uh, uh, the idea of, of, of this, is, this is what it was like. Uh, you, you see it later on in, uh, let's see, chapter... This is the book of the generations. Uh, you, you see that, like in, in, in Matthew, or I'm sorry, uh, Genesis chapter five, where you have basically this. This is the story. This is what happened, and, and you find that throughout the book of Genesis. But verse one is a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then verse two begins to tell us how. And again, we're not going to go into because this, this, in my opinion, this isn't where we see God creating everything out of nothing, because we see something here. In verse 2, we see the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, when, when, I, when I taught Genesis, uh, I, would, I would kind of park there in verse 2, because you have the two Hebrew words there that rhyme. You have tohu bohu. Tohu bohu. And tohu bohu basically is, is what's translated, the earth was without form, tohu, and void. Bohu. And basically what you have in Genesis chapter 1 is God not only bringing form and then filling the void. He brings the form together. He brings the, 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 the sky. He, he, he creates the stars, the moon. He, on, on, he separates the water from the land. He brings the form back together. He restores the form and then he fills it. He fills it with the animals. He fills it with the plants. And then he fills it with man. He fills it with human beings, man and woman, Adam and Eve. And so you have this sense in Genesis 1 and 2 where you have this word that is the world that is in cosmos. You have, you have cosmos or order being brought out of chaos. You have this chaos in Genesis 1 and 2 is what I should have said. You have this chaos in Genesis 1 and 2. And then God takes that chaos and he brings cosmos out of it. He brings order to disorder. He brings restoration from refuse. He brings uh, out of chaos, he brings cosmos. Out of tohu bohu, he brings the form back and he also fills it. And how did God do that? How did God take a world that was, uh, to, what was without form and void and darkness 
And God's going to separate light and darkness. And this idea of separation is going to be found throughout all the scriptures. God's going to separate light and darkness. And we know what darkness represents. Darkness represents evil. Jesus, uh, John is going to say later on, when he's going to write, he says that, that God is light. And he's also going to talk about that we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. And so you have this separation of darkness and light. And then you have the water that covers the face. You have the darkness over the face of the deep. Uh, the, the idea of the, of the oceans being this, this, this uh, place of, of, of danger. Uh, this place uh, of, of uncertainty. And so you have all this chaos going on with this tohu bohu. You have this chaos that's going on and, and the fact that there is darkness. You have this chaos going on that you have this face, this, for, this formless face of the deep. And yet God comes and He restores. And how does He do it? Verse 3, and God said. Verse 6, and God said. Verse 9, and God said. Verse 11, and God said. Verse 14, and God said. Verse 20, and God said. Verse 24, and God said. Verse 28, then God said. God spoke, and it happened. And these Pharisees know exactly what they're seeing. They know exactly what they're seeing. Here is a man whose arm is tohu bohu. It doesn't have any form. It's deformed. And it's void. It's of no use whatsoever. No use whatsoever. And God speaks, and it becomes whole and healthy. It is useful, and it becomes like the other arm. Strong, and no longer deformed. These Pharisees know exactly what is being displayed. And they choose to reject it by rejecting Jesus. But not only does He speak and His divine power is evident, the text also demonstrates the divine approval on Jesus' life and ministry. Let's go, back to verse, let's go back to verse 13. And let's take a slow walk through verse 13. Jesus says to the man, stretch out your hand. He obeys, and then it says, It was restored. Healthy like the other. It was restored. Was restored is what is known as a divine passive. It's God that's acting here. God did the healing. Now, if, now think about it. Think about Jesus, Jesus doesn't touch him, Jesus doesn't do anything. Jesus calls them forth, and Jesus is answering their question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And instead of giving them a verbal answer, He demonstrates whether or not it's lawful. And He just says, here's this man with this deformed arm. It's paralyzed, it's deformed. 
And Jesus says to him, stretch it out. Stretch it out. How's that going to happen? Later on, they're going to accuse Jesus that he does this by the power of Satan. So they know that there's a power that's operating. There's a power that's operating. Because all Jesus said was, stretch it out. And for him to stretch it out, it's got to be healed. For him to be able to do that, something's got to happen to that arm for him to be able to do that. And, and, and again, being the, the idea that it's a divine passive here, Matthew is letting us know that God was doing the healing. And if Jesus was doing something wrong, or if Jesus was doing wrong, would God have demonstrated His approval of Jesus by exercising His power through Jesus? And that's why they have to accuse Him later on of doing what He does by, by, by the power of Beelzebub by the power of Satan, because that's the, that's, their last, that's the last card they can play. They don't deny that Jesus is doing these powerful miracles. They just say, we can't admit that it's God, because if we admit that it's God, that means that God's approval is upon him, and God's approval is upon his ministry, and he is who he says he is. So, we'll just do this. We'll just say, you do it by uh, you, you do it by Beelzebub. In fact, later on in chapter 12, we won't get to... If you look at chapter 12, look at verse uh, 30, uh, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed them, so that the man spoke in Saul, and the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when his, the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out. That's the only place they've got to go. Because they know what they're seeing is being done by the power of God. And they've got no other place to go. They've got no other place to go. Jesus has divine approval because, because Jesus is God's creative and restorative agent. God's creative and restorative agency is through the person of Jesus Christ. Remember what Genesis 1-1 said. In the beginning, What? God did what? God created the heavens and the earth. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And look at verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heirs of all things, through whom also He did what? He created the world. God spoke the world in existence, but the agency through which He did was Jesus, was the Son of God. The agency through which He did was the Son of God. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews 1, 2 tells us, through whom also, by His Son, by His Son He did this, through whom also He created the world. Now, go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And you have that amazing statement there in John chapter 1. It starts off the same way as Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Again, I've talked to you about this before. In other words, in that first verse, what it's saying is, in the beginning was the Word. No matter how far you go back, 
No matter where you want to put the beginning at, the word was there. No matter how far you want to go back, you can go back. Whichever beginning you want to pick, the word was there. The word was there. But not only was the word there, but the word was with God. The idea of being face to face. In other words, the word is different from God. You have two different, you have people who are face to face. Face to face. Now, well, you can look at a mirror, but you know that that's a reflection. But, but when Lisa and I look at each other, there's two separate people looking at each other. They're face to face. There's intimacy between the Word and God. And they, they're, they're separate, though. They look at each other face to face. And the Word was God. In other words, whatever attributes God has, the Word has. So the nature of God is the same nature as the world, as the Word. So no matter how far in the beginning you want to go, there's the Word. And the Word is intimate with God, but the Word is separate from God. The Son is separate. The Word is separate from God. But also, the Word has all the attributes that God has. All the attributes that God has. So he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And look what, look what he says about this Word. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Everything that was made was made through the Word. Was made through the Word. Well, who is this Word? Well, John reveals it to us in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, by speaking the Word and His Word and that man's hand being restored, that man's arm being restored, not only displayed His power, but displayed the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the the creative and the restorative agency that God uses to accomplish, that the Father uses to accomplish that that, that purpose. And they they, they, they knew the Scriptures. They should have known that. But rather than being awed at what just happened and bowing in repentance, the Pharisees, according to Luke's account, when you, go, when you look at this story in Luke's account, the word that's used there, their response is that of mindless rage. You ever been just so mad that you don't know what to do? You know? You don't know if you want to pick up something and throw it? Take your car and run over somebody. You know, just get out your guns and just start shooting. You're just so mad. You're just so mad. You just got you gotta kick the wall. You gotta put your fist through the wall. You gotta do you are just so mad and something's got to be done. That's the idea. Luke says that they were filled with mindless rage. And what do they do? They cast the die. The Pharisees went out, they're filled with mindless rage, and they went out and they conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus must be destroyed. Jesus' life must be ended. Ended. All because they don't repent, they don't want to bow to his authority. 
they don't want to admit what they're seeing before their very eyes. That the one whom, whom, the one whom they are trying to accuse is God. Many of our life decisions are reversible. Thank the Lord. Many of our life's decisions are reversible. But some are not. Some are not. And what our text does this morning is it illustrates the possibility. It illustrates the possibility of making an irreversible spiritual decision. I don't know where that line is in the sand. I don't know when that line is crossed or where in the sand that line is located. I don't know. I can't tell you. I don't know. But what I do know is this. I do know it's possible. And I do know the consequences of crossing that line. And those consequences are explained in the next section. And to kind of give you a hint, look at verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, What's he aware of? He's aware of the fact that these Pharisees have come to an irreversible decision. Jesus has to be killed. He has to be destroyed. They know what their eyes have seen. They know what Jesus has demonstrated to them. They either got to admit that he's divine or they got to get rid of him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew. Withdrew. Pharisees will remain this way. No hope of repentance. No hope of change. No hope of being made right with God. Because he's going to withdraw. Withdraw. Are there areas in your life where you are rejecting the authority and presence of the Lord Jesus? There's, time, there's areas in our life where we all do that. But there has to come a time in our life where we finally say, okay, I give this to you, Lord. And it, it can be a struggle. It might be a struggle that lasts for a lot of years. A lot of years. God in His mercy and God in His grace continues to, to work on our hearts in that area. And, and, and we can experience the joy of Psalm 86.5. For you, O Lord, are our good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. What, what a verse. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love. Chesed. Abounding in steadfast love, abounding in mercy, abounding in chesed to all who call upon you. Or we can do like the Pharisees and just keep building walls. May God help us not to delay. May God help us not to run the risk of casting the die and making a decision that is spiritually irreversible. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to say that you're just one step away from making that decision and then all hope is lost. I am a firm believer that as long as I'm breathing, there's hope. But, based on this text and other things in the Bible, there does come a time when God says, OK, 
okay, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what you want. And I don't know when that happens. I don't know when that takes place. I don't know how many times in my life that I say no, 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 no to God, and then God finally says, okay, that's it. That's it. I'll leave you that way. That's what you want? I'll leave you that way. I, I don't know. But I don't want to see how close to the edge I can get. I don't want to get on, I, on the overpass on I-35 and... First of all, if I, started stand, if I stood up on it, I'd fall over. It would, I mean, I'm, I'm so scared of heights. I'd be shaking even climbing up there. I'd be shaking so bad, I wouldn't have to take the first step. I would just be shaking and just, just fall. But I don't want to... Let's not spend our lives doing this to see just how close we can get without teetering over. Let's get, let's get as far away as we can as we seek to walk with God, as we seek to have the character of Christ formed in us so that we can live our lives. Yes, at times we say no to God. Yes, at times we make the wrong choice. But we do not, by the grace of God, we do not ever want to make a choice, a decision that is spiritually irreversible. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for your goodness to us. Thank you for our hope in you. Thank you, Father, that uh, you are, as we prayed earlier, that you are faithful even when we are faithless. And Father, thank you for the hope. Thank you that we read in the book of Jonah and, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying. And Father, we're thankful that, that it's not one and done that your mercies and grace are new every morning. But Father, may we never, ever, ever, ever presume upon that grace and think that because it's here today guarantees that it will be there tomorrow. So Lord, if I continue to choose rebellion, there does come a time when that's what I'll leave. That's what I want. And so, Father, I, I pray that, that, all, that we all, Lord, would have that desire to, to live our lives in such a way that, that we, would, we would soon come to a place of repentance, that we would soon come to the place of obedience, that we would soon come to the place where we yield and submit, that it wouldn't take long. And, Father, that it wouldn't go on for decade after decade after decade after decade. Father, it would be something that, that we would deal with quickly so that we might continue to enjoy your presence. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts today. And Lord, we just are grateful for your patient work with us. And Lord, help us to balance this thing in tension. We do rejoice in the fact that that you are a God that gives us chance after chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. But God, you are also a God who will withdraw. And Father, help us to keep that in the tension that it needs to be kept in so that we might not presume, we might not 
see grace as being cheap. But Father, at the same time, we might not live a life of hopelessness where we look at our past sins, our past mistakes, and think that nothing can ever be different. Because it can be. It can be. We, we need the power, we need the wisdom of your spirit. We, we need uh, the, the wisdom of your word to help us in this, Father, because we are prone to extremes. And one day we may be real hopeful, and the next day we are hopeless. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us to grow in that area in our life and walk and determine not to live on the edge. Lord, to be able to live in a place where we, we quickly yield to the promptings of the Spirit of God. Thank you, Father, for this warning. And thank you, Father, that, that like I said, you are a God of mercy and grace. You're a God who is faithful and we're unfaithful. But you're also a God who withdraws. Help us, Father, to fear you because of that. And Lord, help us to run to you because of the grace and mercy that's bestowed upon us day after day after day after day. Father, thank you again for this time, for your word. For we pray these things in Christ's name through the Spirit. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, we don't have an altar call, but we do have an invitation. I don't know what your need is today. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, we encourage you to come to Him today. And if you're struggling and, and working through that, we're here to help. And, and uh, as you trying to understand what the gospel is, we're here to help walk with you and, and through that with you. And, and we pray and trust that, that, that the Word of God will continue to, to reach into your life and, and show you your need of a Savior. For those of you who know Christ as your Savior, that God would help us to, to walk in a way that, that we'll, we'll quickly yield to Him. We'll quickly yield to Him. And while God gives us many, many chances, yet with each rejected chance, we, we, get, we do get closer to the edge. Where that edge is at, I don't know. But let's not, let's not find out where it's at. Let's not see where, how close we can get to it. We're going to have a time of silence, give you an opportunity to talk with the Lord about any needs or to thank Him for His work of grace in your life. And then after that, we'll close out our worship. Let's go to the Lord in time of silence.